Our lesson today is from Genesis 18. And the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three sails of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will, re I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but the Lord still stood before Abraham. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. 
Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose, suppose 40 be found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again this one, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. And with thy spirit. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew in the 25th chapter, beginning at verse 1. Glory be to thee, O Lord. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The Gospel of Christ. Praise be to thee, O Christ. So we remain standing. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak and reveal yourself to us.
So I pray in light of that truth that I as preacher just get out of the way, far less of me, far more of you. That your people gathered this day would be edified in your son, Jesus, glorified. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Would you be seated, please? Are we ready? Are our hearts prepared? This fall, we're preaching a series on belonging, and our eyes are set on a goal. In this year of discerning what it is to be a people committed to justice, pressing into the kingdom concerns of Jesus, matters of injustice, poverty, inequality, We've been invited by the coaching work of Young Street Mission to think of this as a work of hospitality, a work of extending belonging to the other, the stranger, the marginalized. Are we ready? Are our hearts prepared? I'm quite sure mine isn't. The area behind our offices over at the Annex is often used by homeless people a safe place to sleep for a few nights or a few weeks. We get to know them, serve them in small ways, navigate how to share the space well. That doesn't always go as planned. Drugs get into the mix, belongings get strewn all over the yard. There's a fair share of disruptions and interruptions, chaos interrupting my desired order. And I'd like to say that in those moments, the love of Jesus is recreated in my hearts for them, but it's not. I'm annoyed and frustrated, wanting it to be somebody else's problem. Are we ready? Are our hearts prepared? I was having a conversation the other night after the evening service. Along with a number of others, we've been coming around a gentleman who is often in crisis. But our love and concern for him over the years has become infused with a little bit of frustration. Why isn't he taking hold of the help that is being given? There's a pathway out of this. Why isn't he engaging it? And how long before our frustration turns to, well, if you aren't going to help yourself... I can't keep giving of myself. Are we ready? Are our hearts prepared? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're not ready. Our hearts are not prepared. You see, I think most of us think of our lives in concentric circles. We'll spend the bulk of our emotional and relational reserves on those who are closest to us, be it family, friends, spouse, kids, And then we might extend that to colleagues and neighbors and fellow congregants. Invariably, we will all have in our lives broken relationships, relationships which diminish our already depleted reserves with hurt and anger and bitterness and resentment. And as I listen to many of the stories that you share with me, we're all struggling to navigate those primary relationships well with wisdom and love struggling to find a pathway to healing and wholeness in the face of broken relationships? Do we then have anything left in the tank to extend welcome and belonging to the other, the stranger, the marginalized? 
Are we ready? Are our hearts prepared? I prayerfully yearn for us to be ready, for the Holy Spirit to indeed prepare our hearts, to not only navigate our primary relationships with wisdom and love, to not only find healing and wholeness in the midst of brokenness, but to have overwhelming resources to pour into the lives of any who would cross our paths. But how? How will our hearts be made new? How will we tap into infinite resources? How? Well, in our passage today from Genesis 18, we bore witness to an incredible heart transformation in the life of Abraham. In our series this summer on the names of God, we spent some time looking at the life of Abraham. 25 years before this moment, God had come to him and said, I want you to leave land, family, everything that you know, and go to a place you've never seen with the promise of land, an heir, a son, the beginnings of a great nation. But 25 years and nothing. He'd had periods, understandably, of crushing doubt, moments where he took matters to his own hands with catastrophic effect, but also glorious moments where God came to him and reiterated the promise. But still, 25 years and nothing. Chapter 18 continues his story. The chapter opens in a very humdrum way. Abraham is taking a siesta at his tent door when he sees three strangers coming down the road. And he jumps into action, uh, the muscle memory of Bedouin hospitality. You see, in that time, you wouldn't be able to survive travel without the hospitality of strangers. What with the beating sun and no roadside stops or hotels or Airbnbs to book. So you would give then what you would want others to give if you were in a similar situation. Food for hunger pains, water for parched lips, a cool cloth for dried up feet, belonging to meet the loneliness of the open road. To provide that extent of hospitality, chapter 18 is filled with action, with extravagance, with deep respect. Now, when did Abraham come to know that these were no ordinary strangers, but the Lord himself and two angelic messengers? We can't be sure, but it wouldn't have mattered. This is what every traveler could have expected to receive. There is much about Bedouin hospitality and what it has to teach us about extending hospitality to the other. Now, if he didn't discern who his guests were in the flurry of activity, he certainly would have come to that conclusion when the stranger asks a question no stranger could ask. Where is Sarah, your wife? Not only did they know her name, but they knew the new name God gave her when he reaffirmed the promise that she would be the mother of the child of promise. They now reaffirm that promise with specificity, specificity after 25 years of nothing. We will come back in a year's time, and your wife Sarah 
will have a son. Now Sarah is listening in behind the tent door, and she laughs to herself, thinking, there's no way. I'm worn out. My husband's old. Shall I have pleasure? Now the translation really sanitizes her thinking a bit. She's wallowing in self-loathing. I'm worn out, useless, good for nothing. And she's speaking about the pleasure of, of, of not having the pleasure of sexual intimacy. She's essentially thinking, I'm an old bag, and my husband, he won't even come anywhere near me in that way. And the Lord responds as if her thoughts had been given voice. Gently questioning, why did Sarah laugh and then won't repeat any of her self-loathing, won't agree with her assessment, simply restates the perceived impossibility of a 90-year-old woman bearing a child, and then reiterates the promise. I'll come back in a year, and Sarah, you'll have a son. Nothing's impossible for God. Now, Sarah speaks, I didn't laugh. No. No, but you did. She lies flatly to the one who can read her thoughts, and yet there's no twinge of judgment, no affirming her self-loathing. There's only kindness, gentleness, grace, the reaffirmation of a promise of a future she couldn't dare imagine. Her laughter now, one of self-loathing, will soon be one of genuine joy memorialized in the name that God will give her for her son, Isaac. He laughs. This is a God of mercy, gentleness, kindness. The meal's completed. Their feet rested, their calfskin canteens replenished. The men get up from their place and set their faces toward their destination. Abraham goes with them part of the way, enough to know where they're going. And now the text turns to giving us God's inner thoughts. Should I let Abraham know what I'm about to do? The reader soon discovers that he's about to judge the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but God's reasoning for wanting to share this with Abraham ahead of time is instructive. First, it's about relationship, friendship. I chose you. God's self-disclosure, his revealing of himself ultimately in Jesus, is about love. He desires to be in relationship with us. But it's a revelation with a purpose. He says, I chose Abraham that he would be a father over a nation that is committed to justice and righteousness, a people that is committed to the full flourishing of everything around them. And what this tells us is that if we are to be a people that are committed to justice and righteousness, we must take God's judgment seriously. That God is a God who burns with holy fire against anything that is undermining his good creation. And in this moment, God's fiery anger is burning against Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Why? Well, he tells Abraham here, because of the outcry against them, which means the shrieks of torment of those who are being oppressed, who are under the boot of injustice. Ezekiel 16 fills out the nature of their wrong, where it says they were puffed up with pride. They had an excess of food and lived in prosperous ease and had absolutely no concern for the poor and the needy. In other words, they ravaged the poor to fill their bellies and lived a life of leisure on the backs of others. Sounds very contemporary, doesn't it? And God is going to go down to see if indeed the cries of the oppressed have any validity to them. And indeed they do. The two messengers go down ahead. They meet Lot, who's Abraham's nephew, at the main gate, meaning he's now a leader in the city. He offers them hospitality, simple fare compared to the generosity of Abraham, and then offers them a place to sleep. They decline. The town square will be sufficient, they say. But Lot insists strongly. We soon discover why. That night, every male in the city to a man comes to Lot's home and demands that he bring the strangers out so that they might rape them. Lot's solution is to offer his daughters instead. It's an absolutely horrific story. Thank God that God intervened. But it affirms indeed that the shrieks of torment of those who've been oppressed by this city have not at all been exaggerated. Judgment would be right, and judgment must come. Abraham is left alone with God, having in one meal experienced God's tender mercy and his fiery judgment. And the text tells us that God stood before Abraham. Now, translators over the centuries have dined to clean this up. They say, oh, it must be a copyist error because God doesn't stand before people. People stand before God. But in great humility, God stands before Abraham. And Abraham argues. And his argument takes the form of a prayer. It's the first intercessory prayer that is recorded in the Scriptures. And just who is Abraham praying for? He's praying for Sodom. It's absolutely stunning. Abraham himself must have suffered at their hands. He certainly has faced the brutality of the Canaanites in the past. Likely he's heard of their ways, their practices. And you might expect him in this moment to be saying, okay, okay, I, I get it, what you're on about with these people. But I've got family there. Lot, his wife, their two daughters, their soon-to-be husbands, would you be willing to, to spare them? But he's not thinking of his family. He's thinking of Sodom. He's thinking of them in light of the character of God that he has just encountered, his tender mercy and his fiery judgment. Okay, okay. God, I understand your judgment. If you did not hate their practices, we'd have no business calling you good, no business calling you loving. You've heard the cries of the oppressed and are in love moving to rescue them. But I also know you to be a God of kindness and mercy. 
So if you are both just and merciful, it would not be just of you to sweep away the righteous with the unrighteous. And so, if there are 50 righteous in the city, would you spare it? And God responds, for 50 righteous, I'll save the city. Okay, Lord, let me ask you this again, knowing that I am but dust and ashes before you. What, what if there's 45? Would you spare it for 45? Yes, I would. How about 40? Yes. 30? Yes. 20? Yes. 10? Yes. 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 For 10, I would spare it. And then the conversation ends. Abraham doesn't press any further. And the Lord goes on his way. What we see in Abraham is absolutely incredible. There's a mixture of qualities that we don't ever find naturally occurring in the human heart. There's this incredible boldness and confidence to come before God and argue your case. But also deep humility. I am but dust and ashes before you. There's this fierce commitment to justice. Yes, a good and loving God must judge evil. But also a deep love even for the perpetrators of evil. This is not a natural mix of qualities that arise within us. But it is only brought about through Abraham's encounter with God. His extending hospitality to the living God. And such a heart transformation is available to us as we extend hospitality to the living God. But how, you might ask. Because we doubt that God and his angelic friends are going to show up for lunch today. Or maybe they will. Well, I think there are some principles here in this text to guide us. First, we've got to let God be God. We've got to extend welcome to all of who God is, not just the parts we particularly like. In the story, I think we would much rather linger on the tender mercy that he displays towards Sarah, not his fiery judgment of Sodom. And more often than not, we choose to receive into our lives a God who doesn't offend us, who agrees with our ideas of right and wrong, who never contradicts us, whose anger never burns against our sin. In some ways, the God we receive is simply a projection of our best selves. But Abraham receives both his mercy and his judgment, his kindness and his wrath, his sovereignty and his humility. And it is the juxtaposition of these seemingly incompatible qualities that shapes his heart to pray the way that he prays. For only a God who is truly God can change, shape, transform our hearts. For as my favorite preacher used to say, if you don't have a God who can tell you things you don't want to hear, you don't have a God who can tell you things that are too good to be true. We've got to let God be God. Now another principle that guides our hospitality toward God is that Abraham bears his heart He's vulnerable for God. He takes a risk. He doesn't agree with God's course of action and he speaks it out. He argues it. He's real with God. And as a result, God transforms his heart. You know, I wish I had learned this sooner in my life of faith. I always try and present my best self to God. 
sort of clean up my emotional life before coming before God in prayer. I'd sanitize my requests. But it would always lead to the ugliness of my emotional life lingering for longer than needed. And so now I take my cue from the Psalms. If I'm ticked at someone who's hurt me and I desire their judgment for them to be exposed, I'll pray it. If I'm envious at someone desiring what they have, the glory they've received, I'll pray it. Why? Because it's in my heart anyway. It's not like I'm hiding anything from God. But I found over and over again in those honest prayers that vulnerability before God I've been met. The Holy Spirit revealing the character of God, addressing those things, healing those things. Let God be God. Be open, vulnerable before Him. A final principle of extending hospitality to God is that we must receive the one to whom Abraham points. We might wonder why Abraham stops at 10. For I believe firmly that if he kept going and said, okay, okay, God, how about five? For the sake of five righteous, would you save the city? God would have said, yep. How about two then? For two righteous, would you save the city? Yes. How about one? For the sake of one righteous person, would you save the city? For the sake of that one. God's response would have been, indeed I will. Indeed I will. For that is the glory of the gospel. That Jesus, the only righteous one, received in himself the just penalty for the sins of the whole world, and rising again, poured out lavish love, forgiveness, and grace upon the many. The one righteous saved the whole. And when we see this righteous one, this Jesus, we behold what Jonathan Edwards called his diverse excellencies that we perceive as mutually exclusive his majesty yet complete humility, his perfect justice and yet boundless grace, his absolute sovereignty yet perfect submission, his sufficiency in himself and yet utter trust and dependence upon God. And when we get close to him, receive him, and his spirit takes up residence within us, our heart begins to reflect his heart. These excellencies forming us, changing our sense of self, our relationships, our relationship with our world, and our pursuit of justice. You see, many of our broken relationships come about when one or both of us can't admit we're wrong, can't admit we've hurt the other. But the mixture of boldness and humility that comes as we encounter Jesus can change all of that. Knowing who we are in Christ, loved, forgiven, chosen, delighted in, can instill in us the ability to listen to how another perceives how we've hurt them, wronged them. Because our identity in Christ is secure. But we also know in light of the cross that evil runs straight through our heart, that the seeds of every wrong exist in our hearts. And so we are likely far worse than the other perceives us to be. But because our identity in Christ is secure, we can admit that and set a trajectory toward reconciliation. Receiving Jesus also changes how we navigate justice. 
When I pulled together the justice working group that prayerfully discerned the hiring of Karen and is currently discerning where God may be calling us in this area, I remember vividly a conversation with one of the members. She works in an organization committed to justice and has many friends and family members who work in that field. And she was intrigued by how biblical justice may differ from a secular understanding of justice. And one of the things she was noticing was that much of the justice work around her was being motivated by anger, which makes sense, right? To see those under the thumb of injustice, to hear their pain, is to have anger rightly stirred up in us. But the Jesus follower has something to do with that anger. They can give it to God. They can say, God, I I believe that you have heard the shrieks of torment. I believe that you are a God of justice and will rightly judge. And that you are coming again in judgment to make everything new. To make things right. And that isn't my job. I know at the end they will pay for their sins. Or Jesus has already paid for their sins. And if we give that anger, that desire for justice over to God, it frees our hearts to not only extend love, mercy, and grace to the victims of injustice, but also to the perpetrators of injustice. Incidentally, this is also a truth that can free our hearts from bitterness, anger, and resentment. I know that there are some in this room who are holding on to lingering hurt because you don't know what to do with the anger that desire for justice, for wrongs to be punished. Give it to God. He will judge. He's promised to do so. That person will pay for their sins or Jesus already has. It's his job. Give it to him that you might be free. Jesus also finally shapes our hearts in terms of how we pursue justice. We read a parable of Jesus alongside Genesis 18. It's the parable of the sheep and the goats where they're separated out based on how they receive the poor, the broken, the outcast. And Jesus gives his pronouncement over the sheep. He says, I was a stranger. You welcomed me. I was hungry. You fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. And the sheep answered, when did we do that for you? And Jesus' response is, when you did that for the least of these, you did that for me. And much is made of Jesus' identification with the least of these, but I want to draw our attention to their self-forgetfulness. When did we do that for you? They're completely unaware of what they're doing. You're unaware of what you're doing when it's something that you do naturally. And the only way that it will become our natural response is if we come close to the one whose natural response is to do the same. Are we ready? Are our hearts prepared? Not at all. Not at all. It would likely be a bigger problem if we thought we were. (laughs) But the answer is not apathy. This isn't going to change, so let's just accept it and keep doing what we're doing. And the other answer is not discouragement. Bad Christian, got to try harder. The answer is found in worship, in prayer and extending hospitality to the living God. Are we ready? Are our hearts prepared? In Jesus, we can be ready. 
In him, we can possess the resources. Through him, our hearts can be transformed. So let us go to him as we are and receive him as he is, allowing his love, his justice, and the hope of the gospel to infuse every aspect of our being that we may love as he loves. To his glory alone we pray. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.